ugly of human relationships, let's start off by singing, Yesterday All My Troubles Seemed So Far Away. <laughs> now I know they're here to stay. And as a lawyer and a practitioner, one of the areas we do is family law, and having both done hundreds of divorces in my career, and being divorced and remarried so that none of you are, I disabuse you of any concern that I think I'm above this subject, we enter today in a subject that is very important and I trust will be very encouraging, maybe a little convicting, maybe both. And if we do that, then I think we've done a good job. The, um, the day we live in is interesting. I told you before that two silly Canadian parents had a coming out party for their seven-year-old daughter who wanted to announce that she wanted to be a boy. I told you about going to court and having signs that say, not men and women's bathrooms, but choose based on your gender preference, whatever that means, and we'll talk more about that. Boston Children's Hospital last week came out and said, Babies know they are transgender before they're born. The University of Southern Maine has a student forum that has voted to fire a professor who has said there's only male and female genders. In Great Britain, a professor was fired because he would not address his children, his, his students in multiple pronouns. I ran into that again Friday in trial, wasn't ready for this, the clerk at the beginning of trial said, Mr. Moore, what do you prefer as a pronoun? I thought, oh man. So I tried my humor. I said, you know, how about, since I've got two doctoral degrees, Dr. Dr. Moore. She did not think that was funny. <laughs> I should have said to him, you know, Spurgeon, as a pastor, when he was criticized for his humor, used to say, you ought to give me credit for what I hold back. But... <laughs> Everything has come full circle, though, because now if you were to go to our office building, you'd find in one of the two bathroom doors a sign that says gender neutral. And all of that, I've got a couple observations. First of all, historians are going to sweep that stuff away as silliness, as foolishness. They're going to say those folks were smelling swamp gas when they were talking about that kind of stuff. And um, on the other hand, more pernicious than that is the challenge against the core beliefs and understandings we have in our world. And that's where we'll be today. Because I think of Isaiah's warning in Isaiah 5.20 when he said, Beware of those who call evil good and good evil, who call light darkness and darkness light, who turn bitter to sweet and sweet to bitter. That's the price tags that we're in. We're in this environment where they're flat out challenging us as to what is truth and what is not. And I've got an answer for them. It starts in Genesis 1.26. Turn to Genesis 1.26, please. Genesis 1.26. The Bible says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move. 
God created man in his own image. The image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's the answer. That's where we start. We start with male and female, not the silliness of what happens in the womb or otherwise. And while I have a lot of compassion and I've had clients who are transgender clients, and I think you apply the, the compassion of Christ in situations, in a lot of people's situations, even so, it doesn't change our value system. It's actually Albert Einstein who said, you know, the foolishness of our world is that those who try to say that the values and standards of life are determined by science. While science has its place, the values and standards come out of the scripture, and that's where we start. So in Genesis, we've got three parts today. Hang on. And as I got into the book of Genesis, I said, uh, here, I did it again. I, sh I should have said we're going to spend the whole time on Genesis, but then I'm not. We're going to start there. But I realized that we're in about our fifth or sixth study in Matthew, and I'm in Matthew 5.23. So um, unless I speed up, uh, Jesus and Matthew are going to finish the exposition for us in heaven on that book. But on Genesis, we have the subject of male and female. And if you'll look at the Genesis chapter 2, you'll see that God created an order. And that order of creation, and Adam naming the animals within that order of creation, that at the end of that, God said he saw that all he had created, and it was very good. But when we get to Adam and Eve, we get to what in Genesis 2 is called paradise and probation. You don't usually think of it as probation, but it is. Because it's paradise, it's the Garden of Eden, but it has rules. And those rules put Adam and Eve on probation. And so we read in Genesis chapter 2, The Lord God put the man and put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are good to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now Adam at that point said, What? What's die? I don't even know what that means, Lord. We know it means not only physical death, but spiritual death, and it's coming. So then verse 18 says, The Lord God says it is not good. And at times I try to move you into the original language. In this case, it's Hebrew. Because that phrase is an exclamation phrase. It says, it's not good, no way. It is awful. It's not good for man to be alone. That's the introduction to male and female in the Bible. Now, you should have been given pause by that because in chapter 1, God saw all that he made and it was very good. Now we've gone from very good to not good. And the not good is because Adam is alone. He said, I'll make a helper suitable for him. A one who comes alongside. It's the same word in the Hebrew that gives Ebenezer, one who comes alongside to help. He says, it's not good for Adam to be alone. The fix is to give him a helper. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field, all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man as to what he would name them. And whatever the man called each creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. But for Adam, 
no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused him to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took out of the man's ribs, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh, and closed up the place with flesh and brought him to the man. So out of the side of Adam came one we will know as Eve. One author has said, the beauty of God taking a rib from Adam was he didn't take from Adam's head for her to be a, a direction over Adam. He didn't take from Adam's feet so that Adam could trample on her. He took from his side so that he not only was one who came alongside, but who was near to his heart. And in fact, that's what happened because here it is. Adam sees this woman and says, I'll use it without the emphasis for a minute. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That's not the Hebrew. The Hebrew, just turn the color on from black and white for a minute. That word now in the Hebrew is at the beginning of that sentence and it says, wow. <laughs> Zowie. <laughs> I've seen horses, I've seen camels, I've seen all these varmints in the garden and you know I appreciate Lord that that work is a gift from you it's not a curse and so I'm thankful for the work you've given me in the garden but this lady is something different <laughs> so he says now he didn't even know he had that need God said it's not suitable for you to be alone he was just in the process of discovering that. And so look at what he does. This, woman shall, this, this one shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. In the Hebrew, the Hebrew word for Adam is ish, I-S. The Hebrew word for woman is I-S-A-H, isha. What's he doing? What's he doing? He's naming Eve consistent with who he is he understands that out of the core of his being this woman is wholly different from anything else in the garden and he says i want to express the absolute closest that i can be with her she shall be isha because i'm ish wonderful stuff and then in this first marriage in genesis chapter 2 where god is prioritizing Marriage over procreation, God says, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, or united to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's what marriage is. And gentlemen, guys, if you're, if you're waiting for your bride, start putting her back into this kind of grid in terms of the value you're going to give to her. And gentlemen, if you're married... The woman you have is your gift from God. And you should never quite, I know the routines of life, but you should never quite recover from the fact that she is God's gift to you. She has come alongside, near your heart. And in fact, the New Testament is true on that because in Ephesians it says, subject yourselves one to the other. So Eve to Adam was an equal. She was a companion. 
I do not like that current groups have tried to steal the word equal from, and make it a different meaning. It's like stealing the word rainbow and trying to make it a different meaning. Rainbows are from God. Equality is from God. And Eve was equal to Adam. She wasn't to be trampled on. She wasn't to be not appreciated. And so in this structure, God gives Adam and Eve, and it's paradise. They're naked. They're not ashamed. And every kind of enthusiasm and intimacy that comes in a male-female relationship was designed for them. That's the good of marriage in the scriptures. And if only it had ended there, we'd have a different world. But Genesis chapter 3 changes the discourse. And it does it because Adam and Eve get faked out of their shorts. They both do. They both misinterpret what God told them to do. Let's look at Genesis 3. So, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from it, from, from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You see the mistake? She overinterpreted what God told her. God didn't say anything about not touching the tree. He said, don't eat it. But when God gives us an instruction, one of the ways we can scoot out from his instruction is try to overinterpret it, make it worse, make it more coercive than it is. And that's what Eve did. Eve said, well, I, I can't even touch it. And the serpent said, well, you'll not surely die, the serpent said, for God knows when you eat of it. Even when your eyes will be opened, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And the woman continued the deception with the serpent and said, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for good wisdom, she took some and ate it, gave it to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Say what? Okay. I understand what the woman did. But what the heck, Adam? What did you do? Like a little toady, he came alongside and ate the fruit with his wife. And from there, we went from life to death. From there, as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve and sons of Abraham, we have inherited a fatal disease, and it's called sin. And it is as true for that newborn that comes out of the birth of the mother to those who live their life and die. And there'll be a new resolution to that fatal disease in the New Testament, and it'll come through Jesus. But for now, Adam and Eve have come under the curse. So, when they ate, when they ate of the fruit, the eyes of both of them were open. They realized they were naked, so they sewed leaves together. What's that? They were naked and not ashamed, but immediately shame has become their byline. Because of sin. It'll also impact their relationship. Then the man and his wife heard the Lord. was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord said to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. Say what? Why should Adam be afraid of the Lord? He's been an ongoing working relationship with God 
naming the animals and receiving Eve, and now he's afraid. He's shamed, and he's afraid. I knew I should have taken the whole Sunday just to do Genesis, but we're going to keep moving. <laughs> because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? Brace yourself, guys. Here it is. The man said, the man squeaked. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Shame on you. Ladies, tune out for a minute. Gentlemen, I guarantee you the way you'll never grow up, either physically, emotionally, or spiritually, is refusing to take responsibility for your own behavior. And it goes all the way back to Adam. It all the way goes, it goes back to Adam and it says, that's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. I was in circumstances that were hard. I was confused. And Adam, wishy-washy, said, shame on him. She gave me some fruit, and I ate it. As the one who was the first of the created male and female, the consequences on Adam are going to be severe, no less, for Eve. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is it you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me. Gentlemen, tune out for a minute. <laughs> Ladies, you will never grow up physically, emotionally, or spiritually if you find excuses for your behavior that's other than owning it yourself. That's absolutely true for men and women. We have to do that. We have to be a church and a people who say, I own my crap. And I'll live with the consequences. There may be some negative consequences. I'll live through those because there are consequences for bad behavior. But I'm committed to doing and being the best person that God gives me with the days that are ahead. The woman said, the serpent gave it to me and I ate. He doesn't even recognize in this text that she understood the deception, how she was faked out. You can't eat from the tree and you can't touch the tree. So God came, and you know the story. He said to the serpent, your history. I will crush your head. One will come from me that will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Within that one phrase is the whole of the rest of the Bible. The striking of the heel is the challenges that Satan and his hordes have made to God's people in the Old and New Testament. And it led to the wound on the cross where the heel of mankind was wounded by the death of Christ for three days until he rose again. But to Satan, the promise is, I will crush your head. He knows that today. He knows that. He knows his doom is appointed. And he's all lathered up and working in every way he can to dissuade us from doing what God wants us to do. Look at the book of Job. Satan came and gave a, gave a report to God. I love that. Where you been? Oh, I've been out roaming around through the world, trying to, trying to do my mischief. And the Lord said, have you considered my, my servant Job? Satan gives an account to God, but he's a powerful, evil force that our culture and our world will try to use to the advantage of those against God's purposes. To the woman, he said, 
You're going to have pain in childbirth, and I believe that. When men say, I'm pregnant too, I say, well, you know, you're really not. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I appreciate you're sympathetic to that, but you're not going to go through pain in childbirth. But he went on to say, your desire will be toward your husband, and he will rule you. We don't have time to develop that, but here's what it is. This is the first marital conflict predicted in the Bible. It is the woman saying, I'm going to rule over you. I'm going to come against you. I'm not always going to be your companion. I'm not always going to be the person that supports you according to my design. And part of the fall of us, of the women in our, in our world, is that they want to rule over the man. It doesn't work. It will frustrate you as women, frustrate you as women, frustrate you as men. It won't work until you're cooperatively working together in a way described in the New Testament. To the man, he said, because you have listened to your wife and ate from the tree, of the, and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And so in physical and other labor, our work, which was set out to be full of pleasure and joy and structure and support of, of living, now has become, at times, toilsome. 96% of men today say, I don't like my job. And I don't understand that, but apart from that, that's that twist and toil that have come as we move into a fallen world. Paradise gained in Genesis 2. Paradise lost in Genesis 3. Turn with me now to Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. Two weeks ago, when we were in the book of Matthew, we talked about murder. Remember that? And we talked about the fact that as a church, we too easily fall into what we call murderer's row. What do you mean, John? Well, it's right there in the text. It says, I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. I tell you, do not murder, but if you're angry with your brother, you've committed murder. Say what? What you're finding in the book of Matthew is that based on this Sermon on the Mount, God is driving his disciples deep out of the surface relationships of the phony Pharisees into matters of the heart and the soul and the mind. And he says, the first and greatest commandment is to love your God with your heart and soul and mind and love, love your neighbor as yourself. And so on the subject of murder, where these religious individuals would say, doesn't apply to me. Jesus says it does. It does. Multiple times over. As often as someone cuts you off on the road. Or whenever you're angry. Or whenever that happens. And then the last time we talked, we said, in verse following that, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar, go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Say what? Jesus is saying, put away your wallet. Put away your purse. Put away your dollars. Even maybe change the fashion in how you worship 
until you get relationships right. First, Kobe reconciled to your brother. I taught this message the last time we were together. Krista gave me a deadline, then she took too long. Just forget Krista. Um, um, last time when I talked this, a woman came up at the end of the message and said, John, I think that message applies to me. I think you've offended my, my husband. We talked for a minute, and indeed, indeed I had unintentionally offended his husband, her husband. I, I got on the phone that night, afternoon and took care of it. And as much as we could, we resolved that issue. That's what we're supposed to do. Then get your wallet, get your purse, get your checkbooks back out. But first of all, don't be a phony. Don't pretend that you're following God and you don't give a cavalier care about relationships around you. God doesn't want that kind of believer following. He wants someone who is devoted with his heart and his soul and his mind. Today, we're in adultery. You heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you the truth. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 1976, Jimmy Carter, who was a presidential candidate, had an interview in Playboy magazine. How many of you remember it? I do. Carter was really, a, I think, only God knows the heart. I think he's a wonderful Christian man. I think he was a pretty awful president. Um, until our current president, who's much worse, um, he, he just was pretty inept, but a godly man. And in this interview, he said in the interview in 1976, the Bible says anyone that looks at a woman lustfully will commit adultery with her. He said, quote, and I have looked at a lot of women with lust and therefore committed adultery with a lot of women. Women. And we said, oh, but it's true. It's true, gentlemen. Present company included, we are adulterers. Doesn't sound very pleasant, but it's true. Lewis Sperry Chafer, one of the spiritual giants of the last century, founded Dallas Theological Seminary. And he said to a faculty meeting one day, gentlemen, I want you to pray for me because I'm having trouble. I'm looking at women's ankles. Now, ankles don't do anything for me, but women do. And in his day and world, he was looking at women with lust at their ankles. For us now, it's usually other body parts. But whether it is a movie that we watch, or a magazine that we see, or pornography that we're exposed to. In God's standard, which is righteous, and for which he wants us to seek him with all of our heart and soul and mind, we are adulterers. And we've got to come to grips with that. We've got to resolve that's not going to be a pattern of our life. Another place in the New Testament says there should be no hint of immorality, even if you have to run the other way, gentlemen, do it. And in that context, murder, resolving conflicts in the body, adultery, now we come to our subject, 
Right, Krista. Divorce. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Whoa. That was so serious that the disciples said, better not to marry. And both Matthew and Paul in 1 Corinthians said, no, no, no. Unless you have the gift of being a eunuch, you better marry. Because it's better to marry than to burn. In other words, except for a season of prayer, a man and woman need to be regularly sexually satisfying each other. That's flat out the Bible. But what happens with divorce? Except for immorality, that's the Greek word pornea. And I remember when I taught at Multnomah before I became a lawyer, I had a little different opinion than I have now. And I would work with pastors in the community and say, you know, I think you're a little loose on that. It really should be sexual infidelity before a person can get a divorce. Now, 30 years later, I realize that pornea has a little broader fashion to it. It's a woman who may be fearing for her life. It's an intolerable situation where after years and years and years, it's just not working. And there are various alternatives, but one of them is divorce. So let's take for a minute the hypothetical that a man or a woman gets divorced, and they don't have all the grounds for divorce that the Bible says. How do you handle that? Well, the scripture says in Matthew 19, begins to tell us, Jesus teaches, he understood the moving standard that came on marriage because of the Garden of Eden. You remember that? In Matthew 19, Jesus said, because of the hardness of your heart, Matthew allowed divorce. He allowed a certificate of divorce. Now, by the time of Jesus' day, the way people got divorced, a lot cheaper than a lawyer, was simply a man would say, divorced, you're divorced, you're divorced, woman, you're out. Kind of sounds like Texas. Texas is kind of like that. Um, but, but, and I love Texas, but Moses allowed a certificate of divorce, and there were certain rules that if you got divorced and your second husband died, you couldn't marry back your first husband, remember all that sort of stuff. The point being... God alone understands that the model and standard of marriage doesn't always work out. And people for good or medium or less good reasons get divorced. Paul addressed this later on in 1 Corinthians 7 when he said to a believer who is married to a believer, stay married, to a believer that's married to an unbeliever, try to stay married. But if an unbeliever leaves, let him leave. You're not bound. So what does that mean? As we move to the conclusion, if you've got your lucky number program, you'll see that I suggest in the conclusions that we have certain approaches that we need to take. First of all, what we can't take is Nathaniel Hawthorne's image from the Scarlet Letter. Hawthorne, Hawthorne wrote a book in 1850 
And he wrote a book about a woman named Hester Pyrene. And Hester Pyrene became pregnant. And she would not tell anybody who the father was. And so in that Puritan, Massachusetts, Boston area in 1850, the community said, we got an answer for that. And they put a scarlet letter on her and had her stand in the public square for three hours. And that kind of shame and humiliation was something that that community felt was addressing the immorality of their day. I say this carefully. We have to be careful as a church we don't do the same thing. We can take the subject of marriage and divorce. Let's change that, strike that. We can take the subject of divorce too hard or too light. We can take it too hard when we say, you're marked out. You're a second-class citizen. Really? What about the apostle Peter? Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. Satan desires to sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you, Peter. Listen to this. And when you've recovered, go and strengthen your brethren. If you think your life is over because you've divorced, you've believed a lie. God is never done with you if you're drawing breath today. Take the opportunities and relationships that you have and make them count. We all have four things in life. We have money. We have relationships. We have talent. And we have certain opportunities that God's brought into our life. And those are a panoply of resources that God wants us to use for his benefit. I often am interested, and I, I am going to close, I often am interested in people who say, the church is full of hypocrites. Well, I guess the world is full of hypocrites, but this is, this is the definition I like of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is not failing to live up to our own standards. Because we all do that. Everybody fails to live up to our standards. Hypocrisy is condemning the behavior in others that you justify in yourself. That's a hypocrite. Don't do that. Strip it away. If you have a history that is less than redeeming, call it that. If you think that God is through with you, he is not. But understand that it is something that he continues to work with you on a daily basis. Let's go back to Peter in John 21. Jesus came to Peter after the, after the ascension out of the tomb and said, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, yeah. yeah, I love you, Lord. The Lord said, feed my sheep. Second time, Peter, do you love me? Yeah, you know, Lord, that I do. Feed my sheep. The Lord said a third time, Peter, do you love me? And at the third time, Peter's heart sank. Why did it sink? Because he was reminded of his failure with Jesus. And Jesus and Peter said, yeah, I love you, Lord. And the Lord said, feed my sheep. And then Peter got sidetracked in the same way Adam got sidetracked. 
Here's the challenge in front of him. He won't pick up on it until the book of Acts. But he gets sidetracked and he says, what about him? He pointed at John, who loved Jesus, Jesus loved. He said, what about him? Lord, you've given me an assignment. What about him? You see how that distraction, that comparison, that excuse for not doing what God wants us to do becomes something that's counterproductive in our life? It won't work. Didn't work in the garden. It didn't work with Peter until the book of Acts. I'd suggest for you that the principle of the church is this. Ephesians chapter 4. Speak the truth in love. Be people who are characterized not just by truth, but with love. Be characterized by mercy that triumphs over judgment. James chapter 2. I love that. Yeah, on my tombstone, if it's not, I told you I was sick, it's going to be mercy triumph over judgment. And third, make your life characterized as one of love. Love covers a multitude of sins. God is not done with you, no matter what your history is. Draw a line in that sand and say, God, I'm going forward in a new and vigorous way for you, regardless of my history, because I know I'm forgiven and I'm moving on to better things. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the rarefied air of the garden that showed what a wonderful start was when you made us in your image and likeness. And despite the failures of those who've come, who's gone before us and ours as well, you've not left us without resources. You've left us with the Spirit of God. And with the love and joy and peace and kindness and mercy of the Spirit of God, may we be people who are a sweet savor to those around us and reflect something of Jesus to those as well. In Jesus' name, amen.